This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Micah Utrecht, associate editor at Jacobin. The word sanctuary has been on many people's lips in the wake of Donald Trump's Muslim ban and other xenophobic immigration policies. But beyond statements of solidarity and maybe hanging an immigrant's welcome sign in the window, what could a 21st century sanctuary movement look like? For some answers, we can look to the Central American sanctuary movement of the 1980s. In a recent piece for Jacobin, A Demand for Sanctuary, Hillary Goodfriend tells the history of that movement and explores what lessons could be taken from it for today. Goodfriend is a researcher based in San Salvador, El Salvador, the street sounds of which you can hear in the background. Here she is. So why did the Central American sanctuary movement of the 1980s come about in the first place? Sure. Well, um, sanctuary movement and the sanctuary activists were really responding to a crisis of escalating violence and refugees from escalating violence from Central America. You know, in 1959, uh, the Cubans, uh, led by you know Fidel Castro and, and Che Guevara, overthrew the dictatorship there, and this sort of sparked a whole series of, of social movements and, and leftist insurgencies uh, pushing for democratic uh, reforms and even revolution uh, throughout the region. And in 1979, um, in Nicaragua, the Sandinistas uh, overthrew the U.S.-backed Somoza dictatorship and established you know, a revolutionary leftist government there. At the same time, uh, this, you know, energized further forces throughout Central America, and you had leftist insurgencies in um, El Salvador and in Guatemala, increasingly pressuring these right-wing U.S.-backed regimes. And, you know, these leftist armed movements were sort of the extreme expression of what had been decades of nonviolent organizing, you know, from religious sectors and unions and campesinos, um, folks pushing for some measure of equity and representation in these historically unequal societies. So these movements for justice were met increasingly with uh, repression by, you know, these right-wing oligarchic elites in the region. And the U.S. increasingly began to uh, support these counterinsurgency regimes in, in Central America, and particularly in Guatemala and El Salvador. So as violence began escalating in the region, there was an increasing tide of refugees, of folks you know, fleeing, often uh, political persecution and this escalating violence in the region, particularly Salvadorans and Guatemalans. And you know, after 1981, when the Reagan administration began to arm the, the Contras, these paramilitary forces in Nicaragua, fighting against the Sandinistas, um, there were also, um, you know, refugees fleeing from Nicaragua as well. So uh, what this meant on the ground in the United States was that all of a sudden, um, you know, border regions were being flooded with uh, refugees and migrants seeking asylum and shelter from this, this U.S.-backed violence. This humanitarian situation was aggravated by the fact that the United States immigration law is incredibly, at the time, uh, biased towards the U.S. political allegiances. And so what this meant was that folks fleeing El Salvador and Guatemala, where the U.S. was supporting these governments, were basically summarily denied asylum claims, whereas people uh, fleeing from Nicaragua 
you know, where there was a leftist government in power were met with a lot more favorable treatment. And so particularly in the case of the sanctuary movement for congregations and religious people who lived around these border regions and were encountering, um, you know, these families fleeing violence um, with these really compelling testimonies about the horrors of U.S.-backed forces in the region, they were really shocked to see that the U.S. government response was just to send these people back to an incredibly dangerous situation. Um, and as a result, they began opening their doors, you know, as congregations, as churches, as communities of faith, to provide shelter to these people, to provide sanctuary to these families, you know, in open violation of U.S. immigration law. So I think it's worth pausing on part of this point for a moment, that these were people from countries like El Salvador who were fleeing political violence that the United States was funding and making possible. Uh, and and well, that was true of El Salvador and true of Nicaragua, but in El Salvador, the U.S. supported the regime that was carrying out the violence versus in Nicaragua, the U.S. was supporting these uh, insurgent forces, the Contras, uh, who were carrying out violence to try to destabilize the Sandinista regime. And so uh, it was politically expedient for the United States to take in Nicaraguan refugees, right? Because you could say, look at how horrible these, you know, communist uh, Nicaraguans are. Uh, look at what they're doing. We have to bring these poor people into our country. Uh, but if you took the same line on Salvadoran immigrants or Guatemalan immigrants, then you'd have to confront the fact that uh, the, the the regimes that the United States was funding was, was creating these huge refugee flows in this insane humanitarian situation, right? That's right. I mean, you know, the folks that were fleeing Guatemala and El Salvador were fleeing state violence. And these were governments that the United States was funding and arming and providing military advisors for and, you know, openly praising in the media as, you know, guardians of democracy against like Soviet backed terrorists, essentially. So in order to grant asylum to these Salvadoran and Guatemalan refugees, they would have to admit that uh, the governments that they were supporting were create, you know, uh, causing these massive human rights violations. And that um, was simply not an option for the, particularly the Reagan administration at the time. So what was the immigrant and refugee flow from Central America like? What were the numbers? And uh, I mean, d did they come the way that Central American immigrants uh, come to the United States now, for, uh, at least folks who are undocumented who come up through Mexico, uh, or were there other ways? And, and, and how did, like, what, what, what did that look like? Sure. Well, broadly, yes. Um, people were, were coming up through Mexico. Obviously, that, that journey was a lot less dangerous and fraught as it is today, but it was still um, it was still really horrific. And in fact, one of the sort of pivotal moments that launched the sanctuary movement was in 1980 when there was a group of like 13 Salvadoran uh, refugees, migrants who died in the Arizona desert. So what, what we were seeing, you know, starting in the late 70s, but, in, you know, especially from the period of like 1980 to 1990, just this massive influx of Salvadorans. I think in the case of uh, Salvadorans and Central Americans in general, I should say, but particularly Salvadorans, in the case of El Salvador, during that period, it was about 54,000 Salvadorans coming each year, uh, mostly to the States, fleeing the country. In Guatemala, it was still fewer, but but also you know massive, some like 40,000 Guatemalans coming to the U.S. each year. Um, a lot of Guatemalans also stayed you know, in Mexico, and, uh, and, and fewer of them in, in U.N. refugee camps. Salvadorans also, some of them were staying in, in Honduran refugee camps. Nicaraguans were fewer, for sure. I think a total of like 126,000 Nicaraguans applied for asylum during that period. 
in the States, um, but we're talking hundreds of thousands of Central Americans. It is worth noting that, um, and, and you know, El Salvador is my sort of country of expertise, so forgive me if that's where a lot of my uh, data comes from, but migration from El Salvador, and I believe from the region in general, actually continued to escalate after the wars and was even greater than it was during during the height of the wars in many cases uh, due to U.S.-backed neoliberal policy in the region that kind of devastated those economies in the post-war, um, which is why we've seen the sort of continual flow of migration from the region since then. But definitely it was a huge uh, spike starting in really about 1980. And then what did the actions of churches who are participating in this movement exactly look like? Were, I mean, congregations taking immigrants into their churches? Were they their congregants taking them into their homes? Was there sort of open flouting of uh, U.S. policy? I mean, what, what did it look like? Definitely. I think, I mean, I think all of that is true. The thing about the sanctuary movement was that it was, it was very decentralized and very much based on sort of individuals uh, feeling compelled and trying to convince you know their congregation to to support them in in a particular case the the movement really started in Arizona in particular and folks like uh, the Quaker uh, James Corbett and the Tucson Ecumenical Council were increasingly, you know, being exposed to the the massive numbers of Salvadoran and Guatemalan uh, families who were, you know, coming through the desert in these really terrible conditions and were being, you know, immediately rounded up by INS at the time, right? This is before ICE and set off for deportation. And so these groups began opening the doors specifically of their churches to host these families, to offer them, you know, shelter and sort of like basic humanitarian services. In 1982 is when uh, a group of congregations sort of formally went public, um, which was a, a more brash move, I guess, especially legally, and declared that, you know, their congregations were going to be sanctuary congregations where families fleeing, you know, uh, U.S.-backed violence in Central America could have shelter and and be protected from deportation. And, you know, a lot of uh, formal church institutions and leaders definitely endorsed the movement. There were important figures like the Archbishop of San Francisco, I believe, you know, endorsing sanctuary. But like I said, it was it was very decentralized. One of the, the ways that families were sort of distributed into these sanctuary networks is that there, there would even be uh, caravans from sort of like the border territories accompanying these, these refugee families to their uh, sanctuary congregations uh, where they would be placed. And so, you know, on the one hand, it was very much this, this humanitarian effort of providing sort of shelter and basic services in defiance of, of U.S. immigration law, certainly. But the sanctuary movement was also really key in the legal battles, trying to open up avenues of residency, protection from deportation for migrants. In a podcast that we did last week, we talked to Matt Eisenbrand, who gave the overview of Salvadoran history and U.S. involvement. And uh, he was emphasizing the extent to which the church was involved in liberation theology and tacit or sometimes even explicit support of leftist guerrillas there. And it's a strange thing for people who are not familiar with this history and who only associate churches with being upholders of rigid hierarchies and of the status quo to hear both in El Salvador that the church was playing this role in a, in, in leftist organizing uh, and that in the United States, 
you had churches that were involved in openly saying uh, in more polite terms, screw you to the U.S. government and to the INS. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the the liberation theology uh, movement is really key to understanding sort of how sanctuary comes about, both, like you say, on the the U.S. side, but also uh, certainly in in Central America. I mean, one of the things that so moved sanctuary activists in the States was the the persecution and the the repression and violence with which um, their counterparts in Latin America and and Central America were being met. Sort of a lot of the groundwork for sanctuary was really laid in the 1960s, actually, under Kennedy with the the Alliance for Progress. That whole sort of reformist uh, effort to sort of stave off, you know, the perceived rise of communism in the region also involved sending U.S. missionaries into Latin America. And that coincided with the rise of liberation theology, you know, this this, um, increasingly radical, but at its heart, very... um, very sort of basic humanitarian um, thread in in Catholicism that advocates for a preferential option for the poor, right? So, you know, throughout Latin America, priests and church people were teaching uh, peasants how to read um, and advocate, you know, for for basic uh, dignities of of human life. And this was so outrageous, you know, to governing elites who, you know, were able to sort of capitalize on the Cold War climate and call them all communists that uh, people started essentially just killing priests, you know, throughout Latin America. And a lot of the missionaries from the U.S. who were in the region at the time, you know, built these relationships with these congregations and communities where liberation theology was being practiced, and they were really horrified um, to see these people being executed for really, I would say, an often modest humanitarian work. And so I think I think that certainly laid the groundwork for them to respond the way they did in the 1980s. What was the Reagan administration's response to the sanctuary movement? Well, the Reagan administration's response was sort of predictably repressive. Particularly, they responded with basically infiltration and harassment. Uh, the sanctuary movement was infiltrated by INS agents basically since uh, at its inception. And these agents began building a case against uh, sanctuary activists. And in 1985, 14 sanctuary activists in Tucson were indicted on charges of alien smuggling and conspiracy. Um, And I think eight of those were later uh, convicted. And similarly, you know, and we, we, I hope, can talk about this a little more, the, you know, the sanctuary movement was part of a broader uh, Central America solidarity movement, uh, which in many ways was a little more explicitly political and radical, although certainly the sanctuary in and of itself was a, a pretty radical political act. And so organ- right, it, it wasn't just like give these poor immigrants uh, a place to stay. It was U.S. out of El Salvador, U.S. out of Central America, right? Stop the Absolutely. funding of, the, of these military regimes that were carrying out these brutal counterinsurgencies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, fundamentally, uh, sanctuary was also about anti-intervention. And in some cases, you know, actual support for, you know, alternatives, um, which in many cases are revolutionary groups like, you know, the Sandinistas in Nicaragua or the FMLN in El Salvador. 
And um, groups like the secular groups, like the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador, CISPIS, also faced extraordinary uh, harassment by the, by the FBI at that time. Um, and, you know, COINTELPRO investigations, FOIA requests uh, have revealed, you know, the widespread use of wiretaps and informants and undercover agents basically accusing the organization or trying to build a case uh, that the organization was just a front for terrorists. And even as late as 2008, CISPIS was getting threatening letters from the Department of Justice accusing them of being paid political agents of the FMLN's, at the time, 2009 presidential campaign. So that's, that's the extent to which the, the right-wing administrations in the states were, were really horrified by, um, by the solidarity reaction. It was kind of amazing to see on the presidential campaign trail this year in the United States the Clinton campaign brought up the Sandinistas to try to ding Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders, during the his debates with Hillary Clinton, gave a kind of full-throated defense of uh, anti-interventionist and uh, essentially pro-Sandinista stance that he took as mayor of Burlington at, at the time, uh, which it was a sort of throwback to uh, that kind of politics from, mm-hmm. from that era that we hadn't heard about in a long time. Well, the Clinton campaign also just horrifically managed to sanitize, you know, the, the wars in the 1980s in the form of the, the candidacy of, uh, of Tim Kaine as her vice president. I mean, it was shocking to see this guy who had been placed as a Jesuit missionary in Honduras, I believe, you know, at the height of these counterinsurgency wars when Honduras was called, you know, the USS Honduras because it was just a staging ground uh, occupied by just all of these U.S. military bases for, you know, the Contra War and the wars in, in Guatemala and El Salvador. And the only thing, I think Greg Grandin has written uh, about this, uh, especially at the time, but the only thing that Tim Kaine seemed to get from that whole experience was how wonderful it was that he wasn't, you know, born poor in Honduras. I think Greg wrote at the time that it was something like an eat, pray, love experience <laughs> totally. for Tim Kaine. Which is just shocking, especially when you think of, you know, the, the Jesuits. And, you know, not all Jesuits were radical, but the Jesuits were, were a face for liberation theology and sort of, you know, social justice work in, in the region at the time. And, you know, certainly the 1989 massacre of uh, six Jesuit priests and their housekeeper and her daughter in El Salvador in the Central American University was, you know, a really critical movement uh, moment, I should say, uh, in, in the wars and galvanizing support uh, against, you know, the U.S. intervention. So it just speaks enormously to the, the capacity that these, you know, neocon Democrats have to erase, you know, our imperial past. In your piece for Jacobin on the Sanctuary Movement, you mentioned that this movement was not just one that was carried out by uh, U.S. activists and, and church folks, important as their role was, but that the folks who were fleeing Central America actually played a very active role in it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's crucial to understanding the way that the broader solidarity movement came about. Essentially, you know, in the in the 70s in particular, political exiles from, from Nicaragua and El Salvador uh, particularly uh, were coming to the states and forming political and cultural organizations, um, you know, sort of continuing their political work that they had been exiled for. 
from abroad, these folks were trying to strategically uh, eventually organize U.S. citizens and residents uh, into their cause and advocate, you know, both for their revolutionary uh, movements and social justice movements, but also, of course, against U.S. support for these military regimes. Um, and so in many ways, you know, it was, it was Central American refugees themselves who founded the Solidarity Movement and strategically tried to organize, you know, particularly, you know, like U.S. gringos um, as a sector that could, you know, leverage their privilege and advocate, you know, directly with the U.S. government against these interventions. So, and as well, you know, in the solidarity, in the sanctuary movement, sometimes it, it might sound as though uh, the only role of refugees was, you know, to give testimony and, and sort of like provide evidence of the horrors of of uh, U.S. policy in the region. But that was that was certainly not the case. And in fact, you know, Central American uh, mutual aid groups were really key in sanctuary movement, um, helping, you know, provide these services to their uh, fellow migrants and, you know, do advocacy work as well. So beyond churches and individual church members providing sanctuary for immigrants and refugees from Central America. How else did the sanctuary movement play out? What else did these social movement actors do? Sure. Yeah. So in addition to, you know, this humanitarian work and all of the the legal advocacy, um, which was really important as well for Central American uh, refugees at the time, uh, the broader solidarity movement was engaging in a whole multiplicity of tactics oriented towards uh, stopping U.S. intervention in the region, you know, fighting con- aid to the Contras and military support to the regimes in, in El Salvador and in Guatemala. And these took diverse forms. You know, on the one hand, uh, folks were leading delegations to Central America, um, you know, bringing U.S. residents and citizens into war zones, trying to intervene when social movement leaders were, you know, captured or disappeared, leveraging international pressure to put visibility on uh, human rights violations and particular crises. Folks were accompanying, you know, organized Salvadorans from their refugee camps in Honduras to repopulate, you know, their communities in war zones in El Salvador. And at the same time in the United States, people engaged in increasingly uh, militant direct actions and civil disobedience. People might remember the most emblematic protest in 1987, which was the blockade of the Concord Naval Weapons Station in Northern California. This was when um, a group of Vietnam veterans got together to block the trains that were carrying arms uh, to El Salvador and providing the bulk of, of U.S. armed support for El Salvador. And one veteran, Brian Wilson, was actually run over on the tracks um, as he was beginning a hunger strike. And he lost both of his legs and nearly died. But there were um, tons of other mobilizations, you know, mass protests, effectively shutting down the Pentagon in 1988. So people were engaged, you know, in, in these kinds of direct actions and also congressional and political campaigns, in addition to, you know, the humanitarian and legal work that we mentioned as well. So this is a fascinating history in its own right, but it takes on a new resonance in the era of Donald Trump when he's carrying out his Muslim ban and the word sanctuary is on the lips of lots of people. So what are the lessons that should be taken from the Central American sanctuary movement that can be used today? And maybe what could a new 21st century sanctuary movement look like? Sure. Well, one of the things that moved me to write about the sanctuary movement of the 1980s today was that 
in all, you know, the sanctuary movement was, as I've mentioned, just one part of a broader solidarity movement. And this solidarity movement was in part about, you know, providing um, support for the victims of U.S.-backed violence, but it was also extraordinarily focused on anti-imperialist organizing and fighting U.S. intervention in the region. And at the same time, in many cases, you know, direct support for leftist revolutionary insurgencies and popular social movements in Central America. So we're really talking about a radical political movement, you know, in the midst of Reagan's uh, cultural revolution and sort of the rise of the, the new right in the United States. So I think it's really important that that radical political perspective be brought to our conversations about sanctuary today. And I, I know that there certainly are organizations that, that are doing this. But, you know, sanctuary has to be a lot more than some largely symbolic municipal decree, you know, in the first place because that's not enough to protect folks from deportation, but also because, you know, logically, and this is what happened in the 80s, you know, if, you, if we extend sanctuary to refugees, then we must also denounce the U.S. policies that are contributing to the conditions uh, for their flight, you know. And this goes certainly for Central America and Mexico, but also, of course, the Middle East and North Africa. And I think the other really important thing that's that's different uh, today is that, you know, we I think we can no longer justify limiting sanctuary to those that are considered refugees. Um, I think we have to show solidarity with all migrants. You know, we, we know too much today about how the mass deportation machine works, about how broken windows policing and the war on drugs, you know, makes black and brown migrants much more vulnerable to, um, you know, negative interactions with law enforcement. And, you know, that's the kind of radical solidarity that is able to challenge not just, you know, U.S. immigration law, but these toxic, you know, violent intersections of racism and capitalism and imperialism, like as institutions and as systems more broadly. You mentioned earlier the kinds of actions that uh, the folks who were involved in the sanctuary movement were taking beyond just providing sanctuary to uh, families in their homes or churches, as important as that is. Uh, things like the uh, actions, again, on the Pentagon or, or trying to block weapons sh shipments from a, a, a base in California. Um, so what what can we take from that? What, what, what should that aspect of a 21st century sanctuary movement look like? Yeah, well, I think the, the sheer militancy um, of those actions should certainly be an inspiration and a legacy that um, our organizing today builds on. Um, you know, these the Solidarity Movement was grounded in this, you know, radical anti-imperialist analysis and essentially, you know, in many ways, a, a radical anti-capitalist analysis that really came from the, the counterparts in, in the movements in Central America. And I think that kind of organizing across borders and, and radical militant struggle is a heritage uh, that the contemporary sanctuary and migrant justice movements have and should exploit, I think, to the maximum. Well, Hillary, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for the time. 